Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the sweetest smelling podcast there is, and the only place to get all of your Paul all of the time. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles. And yes, we are back making up for lost time with the second instalment of our catch-up side series, where we're going to be going back through the McCartney vaults and covering some topics that, by all rights, I, I really should have discussed with you by now. On the last episode of the series, me and good friend of the show, Mr. Tom Quee, discussed both the film and the McCartney-slash-George Martin-composed soundtrack for the 1966 sexual dramedy The Family Way. That was an absolutely cracking episode. I really enjoyed that one, actually. Please go back and check it out if you haven't already, mostly because there are going to be several parallels between those two projects that will become all the clearer by episode's end. The first and most immediately obvious of these similarities is that we are indeed going to be remaining firmly rooted in the instrumental though we will be leaping forward 5 to 11 years forward in the timeline as we discuss the mysteriously not-so-mysterious Thrillington from 1971-1977. But before we can get into any of that, let us quickly breeze through the admin and housekeeping. Of course, this episode is being recorded during the global lockdown, and I hope you're all healthy, well, and safe, folks. I hope this podcast manages to pass a couple of hours of the slog that we're all going through. And again, there's a lot that you could be doing with your free time right now. And the fact that you're listening to this show means the world to me. If you want to get in contact with the show, then drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Let me know your own McCartney stories, no matter how banal or spurious they may be. You don't have to have met the man. You don't have to have rooted through bins or anything. Let me just know how you got into Paul. How did you first discover his music? Did you know about his solo work and wins before the Beatles, maybe? Were you there when some of the original albums came out and you were witness to their initial reception, perhaps? Maybe you know a piece of trivia. Maybe you want to question a review that I've done in the past. Maybe you want to talk to me about something that's coming up in the future. Maybe you just want to give your thoughts on Thrillington. Either way, drop us an email at pommelcunnypod at gmail.com. Check out the blog for all sorts of bonus articles and content I couldn't quite fit into this podcast and even see where some episodes first started out. That's www.pommelcunnypod.wordpress.com. Find us on YouTube by simply typing in Paul Podcast or Paul or Nothing. Of course, for a lot of you, I'm sure many are going through financial difficulties right now during these incredibly strange times. And so even if you did want to support the show in a more direct way and you can't, then what you can do, and it's really quick and it does help out the show in a really big way, is simply by leaving us a five-star review on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on, whether that's iTunes or Podbean or whatever. It it just helps boost visibility and it helps spread the word so that other people can discover the show. Another thing you can do, of course, is maybe post it on a Facebook group, show it to a few friends, anything. If anyone you know would like this show, hey, if you can let them know about us, that would be a massive help. Thank you very much. Of course, 
If you've done that, if you've told a friend, if you've given us the five-star review and you want to support the show even further, then please check out our Patreon page. I don't need to explain it to you again, but it's the way that you can help keep this show ad-free, help keep the lights running, and even fund future, more elaborate episodes of the show. Uh, I think the next one that's going to be directly funded by the Patreon is going to be our In The Clouds book review that was purchased with Patreon funds. So yeah, you do see direct results here in the show. Anyway, if you like what I'm doing, if you've listened to hours and hours of this content and you want to give something back, if you've ever wanted to buy me a drink or something, please check out our Patreon and throw me a couple of quid or dollars per month down the internet. Links down below. Thank you all for putting up with that. We've gotten the housekeeping out of the way. I think it's high time we explain what the hell all of this Thrillington business is. A thrilling beginning! Now, whilst today's selection is certainly less obscure than our last catch-up episode on the Family Way soundtrack, uh, I bet there are still quite a few of you who have only ever heard of this album, or only ever seen the album cover, or maybe even never come across it at all. So, the first question is, what is Thrillington? Well, I'm glad you asked. Thrillington is an album that was released surreptitiously by Paul McCartney in 1977, under the suspicious pseudonym of Percy Thrills Thrillington. Possibly the most well-known story surrounding this album is that Paul went through great lengths to keep up the ruse that this so-called Percy Thrillington was in fact real, and that it was not him who made the album. Famously, this included a series of fake ads and articles put out in newspapers inquiring about this mysterious Percy and detailing his adventures, which, by all accounts, caused quite a stir. Yep, I know that was a bit of a massive spoiler, possibly should have given a spoiler alert there or whatever, but this is a Paul McCartney podcast, folks, so why would I be covering it unless it was Paul and The identity of Thrillington was confirmed in the late 80s slash 90s, so please forgive me if I don't put on a charade for dramatic effect like our Paul is Dead episode. More importantly though, Sam, I hear you ask, what is on the album though? What's the actual content? Well, the best thing about this album, and I I can't believe I get get to say this, folks, it's a song-for-song remake of... Paul and Linda McCartney's Ram from 1971. It may all be instrumental, but yes, folks, I have indeed duped you all. This has all been my own ruse to conceal another Sleeper Ram episode. Everyone, you know it. I love talking about Ram. It's the best solo McCartney album ever, without a doubt, and there will never be enough discussion surrounding its majestic, magical majesty. And for my own benefit more than yours, I'll quickly recap the history of Ram prior to this album as quickly as I physically can. So, Paul and Linda McCartney's Ram was the sequel to McCartney's self-titled debut album after the breakup of the Beatles. As we know, Neither of those albums were particularly lauded at the time, but both have gone through several reappraisals to place them amongst the highest of McCartney's strongest solo works. Though, in direct contrast to his debut album McCartney, Ram was a richly produced and intricately mixed album that showcases McCartney in full Abbey Road mode, and the results are simply unforgettable. 
After some initial home demos were recorded in Scotland, the rest of Ram was laid down either in New York or Los Angeles between the 16th of October 1970 and the 1st of March 71. But after the album had been completed, but before it had come out, Paul had another one of his absolutely insanely brilliant ideas. He was going to remake the album he had literally just made. Of course, McCartney will always have been aware that there have been markets that his mass appeal simply has not been exploiting. That, coupled with his genuine attempt to make as many people as happy as possible, McCartney decided he wanted to tap into the easy listening market. So, easy listening, as the name suggests, is a genre of music that does not require much effort or attention to enjoy. I guess the term background music might be a better expression of the concept, and Thrillington certainly fits that bill, as I've been listening to that album non-stop whilst I write these notes. Now, whilst house music and, you know, lo-fi stuff and vaporwave have all had resurgences in the market of late, they're not particularly mainstream, they're not topping the charts, but 30, 40, 50 years ago, easy listening was a genre that had a huge market with titans like Andy Williams and Mel Torn releasing their own albums and band leaders like Cyril Stapleton and John Schroeder who would take hits of the day and reinterpret them with a jazz, swing, orchestral or big band twist. Some of these hits would include Beatles songs and they would also be hits. This meant that Paul knew full well that it wasn't just kids who were buying his records and that the undoubtedly strong melodies he writes would appeal to anyone, which they kind of do, so I can't fault his thinking there. Also, folks, don't forget, this was during a time when adult markets were actually appealed to within the mainstream, and that is why you'll see in your parents' and grandparents' houses like I do stacks of contemporary acts from those days. I mean, that they're all in suits and cardigans and smoking a pipe and sat by the fireplace, typically with a big grin, maybe during Christmas. But these were all big hits, and why shouldn't Paul tap into this market? Of course, we all know he takes risks like that. He likes to do things outside of the rock and roll. John Lennon could never do this album, but Paul could certainly give it a go. Besides, the easy listening market wasn't just for old farts or the radio either. A lot of the easy listening instrumental lark was also targeted towards dance halls, nightclubs and youth clubs. Yes, people. Young people did used to go out and dance to stuff that wasn't electronic music whilst taking ketamine. And at these nightclubs and dance clubs for young people, they wouldn't particularly want to play songs with lyrics in, unless, unless it was like a Bee Gees song, maybe a bit of Motown or Northern Soul, perhaps. But the majority of hits that would get played were actually instrumental B-sides that were issued on the singles, which is something that I've always been aware that Paul did. Though when I looked into it, I realised the only songs he did it with were Give Ireland Back to the Irish, No More Lonely Nights, and the Frog Song Chorus. So I'm not exactly sure how people are meant to be dancing along to them. So I guess my point after that ramble is that even though it might now seem strange that Paul would do this album, and it seems a bit esoteric and weird, but actually, at the time, all things considered, I don't think it was as crazy an idea as it's made out. 
Now, I'm not saying it is or ever was a brilliant idea or even a financially advisable business move, but it certainly had a logic behind it, and maybe if they'd done it differently, it could have been more successful. And again, it only reinforces that notion that Paul truly was and is and always will be the risk taker within the Beatles. I mean, half the reason he made Ram and made it the way he did was to show people that he was cool and that he could rock with the best of them. And then he goes about braggadociously risking all of that ground gained and street cred earned by taking that incredible album and morphing it into this instrumental, jazzy, brass band, doo-wop vocal, scat jazz vocal, vaudeville, hodgepodge, tin pan alley extravaganza. It's insane. Except he didn't risk it right away. Unfortunately, history would put the brakes on the story of Thrillington for another six years, as the project remained dormant and criminally unreleased in the McCartney MPL vaults. Obviously, Ram came out, and whilst that didn't exactly light the world on fire, at least people could listen to the music. But Thrillington would not be on shelves, like I say, till 77. The reason for this extended delay was the formation of a little band called Wings, which, for all intents and purposes, was now the main focus of McCartney's efforts, meaning that any outstanding projects that might clash with a Wings debut or confuse buyers would have to be put on ice until further notice. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself there. Let's go back to the man who made all of this happen. And no, I'm not on about Paul. Richard Hewson? Right, even by this early point in the podcast, it should be firmly established that Percy Thrills Thrillington is not, and was not, a tangible person, thing, or being that has existed in any shape or form. Okay? Right. Well, even if you didn't know that now, you do, and do try and pay attention. So, if Percy Thrills Thrillington wasn't responsible for this album, who is? Someone had to have done all the arrangements for this album, because, as we all know, Paul loves to outsource with these little side gigs. Just who had Paul roped into this absolutely little crazy concept of his? Well, the real sheepman hybrid thing behind Thrillington was a man who goes by the name of Richard Hewson. Back in the early to mid-60s, Hewson was in a three-piece jazz band that, like so many others before it, Kind of went nowhere, but it was still, by all accounts, a pretty good little group. Hewson played guitar, you had a chap named Nigel Anthony on the drums, and the bassist was a fellow by the name of Peter Asher. Now, as you may have guessed, this is indeed the brother of one Jane Asher, aka the actress who was Paul McCartney's girlfriend in the mid to late 60s for whom he lived with. We actually mentioned the Asher family on our Family Way episode just last time in a bit of a parallel with Paul's life, as he did in fact live with his in-laws. Now, living under the same roof, I'm sure Paul had a lot of contact with Peter Asher. And shortly after that, through his connection with McCartney, Asher was hired as the head of A&R for Apple Records. It was during this time in the summer of 68 that Apple was about to launch one of McCartney's little protégés named Mary Hopkin. Paul had recorded Hopkin in June, covering an old Gene Raskin tune he had heard in a club called Those Were The Days, 
which is a song that has been stuck in my head for ages at the moment, so we are going to hear a little bit of it just now. It does sound like she's been singing that one for years. Though he decided that it needed to be boosted with some strings, and henceforth he turned to his new AR man, Peter Asher, to come up with someone to do the arrangements. Of course, Apple was a big club of friends and chums with varying legitimate skills and contacts within the business. So, typical to form, Asher right away turned to a friend of his to conduct the arrangements. That friend, of course, was Richard Hewson, who described the situation as thus. Apple was a funny place. It was very haphazard. Nobody really knew what anybody else was doing. Peter didn't know anything about arrangers. All he knew was he knew me, and that I'd been to the Guild Hall and studied classical music. And he thought... Okay, so Paul wants some orchestra on this. Richard probably knows how to write classical orchestral arrangements. Let's try him. That's how I got the job, because they didn't know anybody else. That was lucky for me. If they had looked around, they probably could have found a real arranger. This was Houston's first working job out of school, out of college, and those were the days would turn into a multi-million selling hit all around the world. Houston actually did do some earlier session work and arrangements, essentially moonlighting in the few years prior at EMI to make what he would call pocket money as a student. But this indeed was his first official gig, and he hit the ground running. It was during this time that you know McCartney was logging away in his mind that this Houston chap could do some pretty strange and fun things with orchestral arrangements. Hewson would give those were the days this very sombre Eastern European old world feel that incorporated many elements that you would not typically hear on a conventional pop tune. It was a simple arrangement with acoustic guitar, upright bass, tuba, banjo and drums, a clarinet section, violins, violas, trumpets and a Hungarian instrument called a sembalon and this haunting addition of a boys choir. And whilst the tune isn't particularly complicated, Houston is so ambitious here with his first attempt. Though, if you were working for a Beatle, and A, you were trying to impress them, and B, money might not be an object, why wouldn't you? 
After this, Houston would begin working regularly through Apple throughout the late 60s, scoring Hopkins' album Postcard, as well as her next single, Goodbye, which was written and produced by Paul again. The arrangement of Goodbye featured what Houston boasted as being all violas, 12 of them in fact, with no other classical instruments on the record. That was a first. Then his old buddy, Pete Asher, would commission him to do the string arrangements for another one of Apple's new discoveries, James Taylor. So, after proving himself several times, Houston's relationship with McCartney and therefore Apple itself would continue onwards and upwards, right into the Let It Be sessions, where he would end up possibly taking a little bit of a step back by composing the dreaded orchestration for The Long and Winding Road. As we all know, McCartney very publicly and openly derided these choices, and because of his orchestrations, Hewson was officially in the McCartney bad books. He was in the doghouse, folks, and Paul would not talk to him for a year after this point. Wow, Richard, way to go with that one. I'm sure McCartney really appreciated that one, and I am sure since Paul indirectly would probably feel like he got Hewson the gig... You know, I can see why maybe he would have felt a little stung by this. But, come on, Paul. We all know here that Richard is obviously a jobbing man for hire. So, any vitriol about those orchestrations should be pointed squarely at producer Phil Spector, a.k.a. the man who made all of the actual decisions. When speaking of Spector, Hewson recalled the following... He was surrounded by these bodyguards, all wearing these fedoras, you know, those gangster-type hats. He looked like a gangster. Spectre didn't do much to improve his relationship with the musicians. They turned the lights out in the control room. He was just sitting there in the dark with all these weird guys. I was actually a little frightened to go in there. He kept going, let's have another take. He didn't even listen to a playback. He just wanted to play it over and over again. The guys were saying, we played it, we can't play it any better. It wasn't that difficult music for those guys, they're brilliant musicians. The first reading through is pretty well perfect, and the second one is right on. Eventually, after the tenth time, they all got fed up and left. Being brought into the Lady B project so late, Houston was also tasked with giving the same treatment to Harrison's I Me Mine, a very last-minute addition to the album track listing. I actually can't find anything that 
says George didn't like any of these orchestrations. Obviously, George would go on to work with Phil Spector on All Things Must Pass. So, hey, Houston, one out of two Beatles isn't that bad, is it? Just for reference here, folks, I'm neither here nor there on the issue of Let It Be versus Let It Be Naked, particularly The Long and Winding Road. I think the song works pretty well equally for different reasons on both editions. And the fact that the orchestral stuff has always stayed in Paul McCartney's live sets, uh, it kind of leads me to believe that this is a bit of a non-issue, and this is just one that fans like to constantly recirculate. Anyway, McCartney would obviously talk to him again a year later, and at least Hewson probably walked away with a bit of money in his pocket, right? Actually, no. No, he didn't, folks. He was paid just £80 for his efforts, akin to around £1,000 or £1,200, $1,300 today, which, for songs that would go onto a multi-million selling album, really isn't a lot. But, as Houston details in many of his interviews, arrangers are not songwriters. They do not get royalties And if anything, a great way for an arranger to make money is to tour with arrangements that he's worked on. Hold on to that information for later on. Houston's year of radio silence with McCartney ended in the March of 71, when Paul contacted him to potentially conduct an instrumental version of his latest album, Ram. Now, Houston panicked here a little. He was a jazz man, and he had not heard of this modern pop-rock epic that was Ram. But he could be forgiven. No one had. The album was still two weeks away from release. But even if it had been available, he probably wouldn't have heard it. He's quoted as thinking Dusty Springfield was a cowboy, so his finger's not exactly on the modern pop-rock pulse. But... Obviously, Paul McCartney's asking you to do something for him. Whether or not you are qualified, you say yes, don't you? Again, why wouldn't you? McCartney had already been in New York doing the final mixing for Ram, so he was planning on recording the sister album there too. Of course, we're going to get into the specifics of the album recording during the next segment, but... The point is, Hewson survived the Thrillington sessions with McCartney without angering him for another whole year. However, despite this all going so well, as we know, nothing came of the album. It never came out, did it? At least not for six years. Which, from Hewson's point of view, probably felt like a whole lot of work for nothing. And he describes the situation as thus. I got a letter... I don't remember much about it, but it said something like Paul really wants to release the album and he does like it, or something like that. In fairness to Paul, though, I had a free hand, and I've always had a free hand when I work with him. Whilst it would be six more years before Thrillington hit the shelves, Hewson would work with Paul once again during that interim in the Red Rose Speedway sessions, which, now that I think about it, is pretty appropriate, considering how many Ram offcuts are on that album's track listing. The specific orchestrations that Hewson worked on were for My Love. When speaking of these sessions, in the same article written by my guest Ewan, who we're going to have on later, in this following quote, Hewson is going to create endless debate over who deserves the credit for this album. He says, I don't know what it is, but Paul always trusted me. Maybe he liked my stuff, but he always said, do your own thing. He asked me to do My Love with Wings, and again, didn't make any comments. 
Now, whilst I'm not going to entirely get off the fence here, I still hope that with all this time we've spent talking about Richard Hewson here, that it is clear that this isn't just a nobody yes man, a, a real minor figure that we can just write off and assume Paul did all the work. In a small way, in his own way, he was a pretty significant figure in the history of Paul McCartney and the Beatles. So when it comes to discussing this album and its creation and particularly credit, we shouldn't overlook Mr. Hewson for one second. After working with Paul, Hewson would go on to work with the Bee Gees, Fleetwood Mac, Chris Rea, Diana Ross, Carly Simon, Supertramp, and would even form a one-man supergroup whose namesake would be taken from his own initials, the Ra Band, or R-A-H Band. His single, The Crunch, would end up getting to number six in the UK charts in 77, and let's just hear a little bit of that now before we move on. Recording the album. The recording sessions for Thrillington took place in just three sessions over three days in June 1971, each lasting around 14 hours. Now, it is normally described as these sessions taking place before Ram was even released, but for those who aren't too good with dates, it was actually about two weeks after the US and three weeks after the UK release of the album that the sessions took place. As mentioned in the last segment, Hewson and many of the other musicians were contacted and informed about this gig prior to the album coming out, but the sessions did in fact come after, and I think it's this fact where some people might get confused. As I mentioned earlier, rather like the Family Way soundtrack, there is some considerable dispute concerning who did what in terms of crafting this album. We have Hewson as the arranger, and McCartney as the producer. From this division of labour, we can already assume that McCartney would still likely be able to change anything about the album that he didn't like. But, based on what we know about Hewson's work and their relationship, I'm not sure if Paul would have had to make all that many alterations at all. The real question is, though, what does an arranger do? Well, first and foremost, the arranger is the person who, you guessed it, arranges the musicians and players and sorts out what parts they will be playing and when. Of course, Paul will always have the final say-so and be able to make alterations here and there, but the artist here is Hewson, and all of the first calls are his, all of the initial ideas will be his, any non-McCartney move will have to be fought for tooth and nail, and since Paul does not play any instruments on the album, 
I am inclined to believe that he did truly swallow his pride somewhat here and step back and acted purely as the man behind the buttons with his face reflected in the glass. When speaking of Paul's involvement, engineer Tony Clark recalled, He was there the entire time, fine-tuning it, speaking with the musicians, just being on top of it and making sure that the feel is right. He was definitely in charge. Everyone was secure that if there were any decisions to be made, he would make them. Now, this does somewhat contrast the idea of Houston having the free reign on this album that he describes. Like, I know this is quite a minor album, but I don't think Paul and MPL would let Houston get away with saying all of these things if it wasn't true. Houston continues these sentiments in Ian Peel's book, The Unknown Paul McCartney, when he says, I think Thrillington was the most rewarding because Paul gave me a completely free hand to do whatever I wanted. This freedom was also exhibited in the list of musicians which Houston began to cultivate. He later describes hiring a long list of folk who made up many of his and Paul's favourite session players at the time. Being a jazz man wanting to make a jazz album, many of the musicians came from a jazz background, and having done some research for this segment, I can now see it was a real who's who of big names. Of course there was a host of 19 string players as well as brass and woodwind instrumentalists that sadly are not named on the record specifically, uh, presumably there was just too many of them, but of course they absolutely nail it on this album, they know who they are and this is just a shout out to them now. Before we move on to the named players on this album, starting off we have Vic Flick on electric guitar as well as the acoustic and Spanish guitars. Vic Flick was and still is a very famous session guitarist who will be known to many of you as the guy who played the original James Bond guitar riff. You know the one I mean. Yeah, that one. But he too goes way back with Paul, albeit in a somewhat peripheral role, whereby it turns out he actually played guitar on both soundtracks for A Hard Day's Night and Help. It's not unreasonable to assume Paul was still well aware of him as a performer, and it's easy to see why he will have been chosen, as he is just so versatile and plays anything Houston throws at him like he was chosen for that song specifically. We then have another major name, Herbie Flowers, on the bass guitar, though he's also credited as playing the tuba. I'm not sure where on the album, but he is. Before this album, Herbie Flowers hadn't appeared on much of note, and I'm not going to say that Thrillington catapulted him into fame or anything, but he did go on to be the bassist alongside Klaus Vormann on Lou Reed's iconic album Transformer, David Bowie's Diamond Dogs, and Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds, which is literally in my top 10 albums of all time. And it has one of my favourite bass lines of all time as well. Let's quickly hear that. Thank you. 
After working on this album, Herbie Flowers would again go on to work with Paul on Give My Regards to Broad Street, another one of these catch-up episodes that we will be getting around to at some point in the near future. Next up was Stephen Gray on the piano, another very famous session player who worked for the Walker Brothers, Olivia Newton-John, Henry Mancini, and even with Sammy Davis Jr. back in the day. Most famously, though, he and the aforementioned bassist Herbie Flowers would go on to form the four-piece instrumentalist supergroup Sky, led by guitar legend John Williams. Then there's Roger Coulomb, slash Roger Coulomb, depending on uh, who you ask, on the organ. Couldn't find too much on this guy, but he played a lot with Blue Mink, and he's on an album by The Searchers, though he does have a Beatle connection, as he did play with Jimmy Nichols and the Shub Dubs. Following on, there's Clem Catini on the drums. Apparently, he was the original drummer considered by Jimmy Page to be in Led Zeppelin, so he must be pretty fucking good. He worked with everyone from the Kinks to Lou Reed again, uh, the Goodies and the Bee Gees. On percussion, and presumably doing all of the non-drum kit parts, we have Jim Lawless, who has literally zero appearances on any albums I've ever heard of, though he does have a tiny Beatle connection again, as he did work on Jane Birkin's 1978 album. She, of course, was in the George Harrison-scored film Wonderwall from 1968, which I also mentioned on our last episode, and you can also see Jane Birkin in the George Harrison Living in the Material World documentary as well. Speaking of big Beatle connections, the Mike Sams singers, who did the wide variety of vocal stylings on this album, had actually appeared previously on two separate Beatle records, lending their vocals to both I Am The Walrus and Good Night. Then I came across the name of the Swingle Sisters, and it's showing some of the liner notes that they did, the vocals for about five songs, which confused me because this is mostly an instrumental album, but... In Ian Peel's book, The Unknown McCartney, it's reported that it's stated that this is a widely misreported factoid and that possibly some members of the Mike Sands singers and some members of the Swingle Sisters had a bit of overlap, so maybe that's where the confusion came from. But yeah, it is the Mike Sands singers on this album by all accounts. Finally, we have the Cole Dolmetsch family who played the recorders. Again, not that I would have ever come across this family before, but the Dolmetches were well-known recorders who apparently sold albums worldwide. Other faces that might be familiar to you on this release can be found in the sound engineering department with both Alan Parsons of the Alan Parsons Project and Tony Clark pushing all the buttons and brewing the tea, of course. Both Parsons and Clark would later go on to work with McCartney not only one week later on the Wings' debut album Wildlife, but they actually both go back much further with Paul than I first thought at the start of this episode. Tony Clark, who I quoted earlier, was, as it turns out, a bit of a rising star crew member at Abbey Road Studios, who, after being promoted to a full engineer at the age of only 20, ended up mixing the paperback writer single before moving on to the Come and Get It single for Badfinger. Parsons, who we obviously know would go on to do his own thing, as well as working on Red Rose Speedway with McCartney, was actually an engineering assistant on both Let It Be and Abbey Road. 
which is really nice actually, as it shows that the core group behind this project was a close-knit group of people that did all know and like each other, which must have been a refreshing change of pace for Paul in the studio. Another change of pace for Paul would have been the work schedule in which the album would have been recorded, as he was certainly used to doing things in the laissez-faire McCartney manner. But, as detailed here in an article in Good Day Sunshine magazine, we can see that Hewson's formal training meant that there was no risk of a Red Rose Speedway session type of situation ever happening here. It reads... Hewson planned a neat breakup of the arrangements in order to economically record all of the material in the three days allotted. Unlike a rock recording, a Beatle one for example, where the musical ideas are often worked out in the studio, orchestrated arrangements already have the ideas planned out, on paper no less. All of the titles, featuring strings for example, can have all strings recorded in one morning session, and all songs requiring horns can have them added later in an evening session. So what we can take from this, folks, is that there was no one standing around in these sessions. There was always people being busy. Everyone who was there was meant to be there. And it was very organised. The first session at Abbey Road took place on Tuesday, June 15th at 10am in Studio 2, which to Houston was quite the delight, for it was, as he describes, the downstairs one where all the Beatle recordings took place. Recording was done here for what is known as the basic tracks for all of the songs with the group of musicians known as the Pop Combo. Essentially, all of the Pop Combo would do all of the basic instrumentation here with all of the orchestral overdubs being recorded later. The Pop Combo was essentially all of the named musicians that we've mentioned here early on, all of the veteran session guys, a.k.a. Vic Flick, Clem Catini, Herbie Flowers, Steve Gray, Roger Coolan, Roger Coulomb and Jim Lawless. Then there was the evening session that day from 7 until about 10, which featured the recording of 10 violinists, 4 cello players, 2 clarinets, 2 alto saxes, and a harpsichord. On the Wednesday, the 16th, there was another session at 10am in Studio 2, which had McCartney, Hewson and Clark recording a group of 4 flutes, 1 piccolo, and the boys' choir that would feature on Ram On. The afternoon session, which began about 2.30, featured the Mike Sams singers. And then in the evening, there was more recording at 7.30, with nine more violinists being taped, as well as the Dolmetsch family recorders. The next day, Thursday, June the 17th, recording moved into Studio One, which is the same location used in a lot of Beatle orchestrations, such as the end of A Day in the Life. You would have seen footage of that before. It's a very, very large room, perfect for this kind of thing. And these sessions featured the most musicians, the most violinists, all coming together for those bigger songs. Songs like Too Many People, Monkberry Moon Delight, and The Back Seat of My Car. Overall, it's reported that the sessions ran quite smoothly over these three days, with one rare exception where Richard Hewson recalls one of the musicians becoming so drunk, getting so pissed, that he got in his car at lunchtime and drove down Abbey Road, smashing into a total of nine cars. Hewson said, I don't know whether it was my arranging and conducting that drove him to do it. I guess that explains the little bit at the start of the album that we can hear where someone titters about uh, someone sneaking off to the back office for a bottle of scotch. 
it wasn't a recording session, but work was done on the fourth day, Friday, June 18th, where the album was mixed by Clark and Parsons in what is described as a marathon session that didn't end until 11am the next day on Saturday, June the 19th. When speaking of this day of mixing, Tony Clark, despite firmly asserting that Paul was indeed the man in charge earlier on, does express a similar sentiment to Richard Hewson in terms of creative licence, as he details here. Paul was there for the mix. He allowed me the freedom to set up the mixes and get the basic feel of it. There was actually a spirit of energy that lasted through the whole night. Paul used to live in St John's Wood back then, and he'd pop home with Linda and then come back again, which was great, because if I was flagging a bit in the night, he'd help put a bit of energy back into it. And with that, the album was essentially one and done in four days. An absolutely amazing feat. And that is everything I could find on the initial recording of this album. Big shout out again to Ian Peel's book, The Unknown Paul McCartney, and also to Matt Hurwitz for his article in Good Day Sunshine magazine, for whom this particular chapter owes a great debt. Anyway, now that we actually know what happened behind the scenes, let's have a look at what Paul McCartney wanted us to believe happened behind the scenes. Who was Percy Thrillington? Normally on this show, the recording of the album segment that you just heard is normally the herald that we're about to start winding things down at the end of the episode. But with Thrillington, the most interesting part of the story happened after the album's recording. Throughout his career, McCartney has had a history of fake personas. Firstly, he called himself Paul Raymond when checking into hotels to hide his identity. In 66, he freed the Beatles musically and conceptually by donning the persona of Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and he would later go on to be known as the Fireman. So I think it's safe to say that Paul knows the positives that a little distance from your work can achieve. For Thrillington, Paul was certainly planning to put a little extra distance between it and his current incarnation of Wings. Yeah, I know London Town wasn't exactly going to be their coolest moment or anything, but they had just released the super successful Wings Over America, and so were, for an all too brief period, hot shit. They were a popular band, everyone loved them, and... No matter what era of the band we're talking about, whether the first or fifth incarnation of the band, I don't think they would have benefited from being associated with this particular jazzy production. So what followed was one of the most asymmetrical, weird and out there marketing campaigns that I've ever come across. Paul would create a fake person called Percy Thrills Thrillington who would act as a diversionary distraction away from himself that would allow him to pretend that he was still cool rocking man Paul McCartney with wings, whilst still being able to release the album and receive all of the financial benefits for himself and company. It's the musical equivalent of having your cake and eating it. Paul clearly had a lot of fun creating this character, and Percy would end up being this posh, cultured, globe-trotting, musical impresario type who would be the supposed talk of the town amongst London's social elite and ladies. In an article in The Guardian, 
from 2008, McCartney details the laborious creation of the entire Percy Thrillington character. We took several personal ads in front of the time of the Evening Standard saying, Percy Thrillington seeks the love of his life. People eventually began to ask, who is this Percy Thrillington who keeps taking out small ads? And then, on holiday in Ireland with Linda, we finally just decided to find... We finally decided to find an actual Percy. We found a lad working in a farmer's field. We went up to him and asked, Would you mind doing a photo shoot? And so, for a modelling fee, we persuaded him to put on a dinner jacket, and Linda took some pictures. And this Irish farmhand became Percy Thrillington. This impromptu model was chosen because Paul simply wanted to find someone who could not possibly be tracked down later. It was a fun idea as it would throw the scent further off the McCartney proper. But sadly, the photos of this real-life Percy Thrillington have never surfaced. Apparently, it was because he simply wasn't, and I quote, Percy Thrillington enough. And, since these photos were not included in the McCartney archive re-release, I highly doubt they'll ever surface. Which is a real shame. Though, since there was no physical Percy, Paul could create a metaphysical one that would not be constrained by silly things like reality. Now, if Paul did it today, Percy Thrillington would be done via his own YouTube, Twitter and Instagram pages. He would pay off social media influencers to spread his name. He might have a brand endorsement and possibly even be a fully CGI character. However, Paul did not have access to any of that high-tech stuff, so instead he settled for the Twitter of the day, which was the personal pages and ads in London newspapers. Along with Paul's own example from earlier, these fake news headlines would include lines like, Percy Thrillington has been persuaded to prolong his stay in Paris as he finds the springtime atmosphere most conducive to his creativity, or... Percy Thrillington, despite excesses on both social and business times, hopes to lend his support to today's Daffodil Ball. Or even, Percy Thrillington will be attending tonight's production of Don Giovanni and awaits with eager anticipation a stimulating performance from Miss Hayashi. Dozens upon dozens of these fake news posts were scattered across London papers, but they were mostly concentrated in the London Evening Standard. The paper... Percy would have read, I am sure. After a while, Percy would create a cast of characters that he would start visiting and interacting with, and then eventually the public would even start writing in themselves to Percy to see if he would answer. Sadly, he never did. Now, part of the story that I really did want to get to the bottom of with this episode was, did this genuinely create a mass media hullabaloo at the time, and... You know, was there an actual concerted effort amongst journalists and socialites alike to find out the identity of Percy Thrillington? Did this actually happen, or is it going to end up like the Orson Welles War of the Worlds broadcast, where it was just overhyped? Well, well, after several classified... Well, after the first several waves of these classified Thrillington posts, the London Evening Standard actually went and published a full article titled The Perambulations of Percy Thrillington, which, as its own half-page spread, sought to get to the bottom of this mystery. Evening Standard journalist Stephen Clarkson wrote at the time that Every day, it seems, curious readers and other telephoners are demanding to know more about this man. 
Now, we'll never know whether Mac has simply had friends in the media, specifically at the standard, that would help facilitate this mystery even further, but it does seem like that he and MPL were not alone in trolling the public. Also, just before we move on, looking at the dates of that headline in the Evening Standard there, you cannot tell me that this headline did not inspire Paul to use the word perambulations in the wing song Famous Groupies later that year. However, it's possible that all of this constant media barrage may have run its course and been a little too much by its end. The public just lost interest. Not only because Thorington's not only because Percy's posts contained ever more advertisements for his album rather than his life, but, well, I'll let Richard Hewson sum it up best here for you folks. The British press got really fed up because everyone knew it was made up. So yeah, I can't seem to tell whether the mythos of Percy Thrillington has been overhyped and played right into McCartney's and his legacy's hands, you know, or whether the response has been massively downplayed, because I didn't even know people were actually responding to Percy Thrillington and that articles were put out by people other than Paul. So there was some response, though in all likelihood 95% of people who lived outside of London and London Centre probably just went on with their everyday lives. You know, it went entirely unnoticed. Uh, If you do remember anything about Percy Thrillington live at the time, then please drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Though the law was not just relegated to what appeared in the papers, Percy Thrillington's backstory would be forever immortalised in an official press release written by Clint Harrigan, who explains the situation as thus. What is known about this enigmatic figure is that he was born in Coventry Cathedral in England in 1939. As a young man, he wandered the globe. His travels took him to Baton Rouge, Louisiana in the United States, where he studied music for five years. He later moved to Los Angeles, where he gained expertise in conduction and arranging, as well as the marketing end of the business. Eventually, his path led to London, where his long ambition to form an orchestra and record was finally realised when he met Paul McCartney, who helped Thrillington secure a recording contract. It continues... On the album Thrillington, he takes all the songs from Paul and Linda McCartney's Ram album and, with the help of London's best orchestral and big band musicians, forges the pop music themes into new, entirely instrumental versions. Then the rest of the press release goes on. I don't want to read out the entire thing for you there. It would be like reading out the entire Paul McCartney interview in 1970. But the rest of it goes on to detail everything that we know about Percy, uh, including a couple of details, like that he's exceptionally wealthy and a bit of a notorious Casanova. You know, he's reported to have sent every female journalist in London a single red rose. Not sure if it was sent via Speedway, but Paul would even go through the effort to hire an actress to play Percy's assistant on the radio, who would describe him as an appreciator of women. So they really were going all out here. You know, this was a very multi-layered effort. But for those of you who couldn't pay attention to any of that because they were too busy trying to remember who Clint Harrigan is, 
uh, and where they've seen him before. He was the chap who wrote the album liner notes for Wing's debut album, Wildlife. Bit of a nice connection there. However, the real mindfuck is that Clint Harrigan is actually another fake persona of Paul McCartney's. Which is just inception levels of fakery here. And when speaking of his alter ego Harrigan, Macca said, I thought, I can't just sign it Paul McCartney, having written just how great the group is. So I made up the name Clint Harrigan. It was the easiest way of doing it, to put someone else's name there, to do a little cartoon and put it out. On another note, Coventry Cathedral, near the house where I was living, actually, when I started this podcast a couple of years ago, uh, is the place where John and Yoko famously planted an acorn for peace that was duly dug up and stolen the next day. But yeah, back to that press release, because it really is just the best. I mean, I even love how it points out to the public that they've been played by Percy because he knows how to do the marketing side of the business. Though at the end of it, uh, and this is the, the kicker for me, the whole damn segment here is somewhat defined by my disappointment that Macca includes his name in both this press release and on the album liner notes. I wish he'd just separated himself entirely from this concept and just let it gestate naturally. No, this is Paul McCartney, he can't wholly be out of the spotlight, and the fact that Paul's name is on the album, in the liner notes, in the press and stuff, kind of ruins a bit of the fun. I mean, come on, when your press statement says, Percy Thrillington certainly isn't Paul McCartney as some people seem to think, Percy Thrillington does exist as an individual, and it is surprising how some people are following his activities through personal columns. Hopefully, he will make a personal appearance soon, but he does spend a lot of time rushing around the country and seems to wish to remain anonymous. It all seems to be a case of the lady doth protest too much, methinks, to the point where I can't believe that this wasn't figured out and wider public knowledge sooner. I mean, maybe it was, uh, again, right into me if this was a real open secret. Of course, the first port of call for anyone interested in this project would have simply assumed that Thrillington equals McCartney. But don't draw any more attention to Paul than you need to. Like, let there be a bit of mystery. Obviously, Paul was the producer, so he couldn't deny any involvement. But, like, they also could have put Paul's name as a pseudonym as well. Like, maybe have producer Paul Raymond and then... Just leave it at that, and that would have been enough for people. However, for those of you who might feel annoyed that you have to just sit there and listen to McCartney go on about how he's not Thrillington, I don't think it's too much of a a leap in logic to assume that another possible reason that Paul created this Thrillington persona, one that so specifically attempts to distance himself from himself musically is due to the fact that he wasn't the arranger or conductor on the album, just the producer. So, in turn, this leaves the possibility open that even Paul considers Richard Hewson to be, indeed, the real Percy Thrills Thrillington. And Paul was not the only one who floated this theory, as Tony Clark explains here. By the way, to answer our original question of who the real Percy Thrillington is, one only has to go back to the studio records. It wasn't an EMI job per se, as I recall. It was booked as an independent job. The tin, the square metal, in which the master tapes are kept in, had the artist listed as Richard Hewson on the label. I went back to look at it later, though, 
and someone had crossed off Richard's name and written Percy Thrillington. I guess that answers your question. It's annoying how Tony Clark doesn't specify there how much time later the name Percy Thrillington was written on that metal can. We can only assume it was many, many years later, but who knows? Thrillington, like we say, could have been floated around as early as its inception. After all of that, though, if the creation of Thrillington is indeed a kindly nod towards Hewson's involvement and that the fact that Hewson was semi-officially the real Thrillington, it certainly wasn't appreciated by Hewson himself. He cites that the overall ambiguity and mystery surrounding the whole project led to a feeling amongst the press and public that the whole thing was, quote, a scam to cover for a dodgy album. From his point of view, that's what led to the poor album sales that we're going to discuss later on. He details further here. It's a mystery. I've never quite figured out why he did it. I wasn't totally for it. Maybe he felt it was a better way to show his crazy ideas. But if he'd released it as Paul McCartney Orchestral or something, it might have sold much better. Because it didn't sell very well. A lot of people didn't know about it that I've spoken to. Some people knew, some people didn't. He continues, Because of the fictitiousness of the Thrillington bit, there was nobody eventually to perform it. They didn't want me to go on the road with it as Percy Thrillington or anything like that. It would have been wonderful if it had been presented with a proper orchestra and good musicians playing live. Of course, that never happened, but that is just so sad. A live Thrillington album would have been absolutely lovely. But there is no reason why they can't do a live Ram tour today. There is no reason why they couldn't do that at all. Going back to that quote, though, folks, if you didn't quite get Houston's point there, he's not mad that, you know, he's not officially accredited as Thrillington or anything like that. He doesn't care about the glory of the album. He just wished that it would have sold a bit better so he perhaps could have toured with it and perhaps made a little bit of money off it. Being an arranger, he doesn't get any residuals or anything like that. He doesn't get any checks in the post every couple of months for his royalties. He'll just get a one-off. So touring would have been a much more profitable outcome for him. You know, this is a bit like Deddy Lane at the end of Wings when wanting to tour and stuff like that. Of course, Paul had written all of Ram, so it's all going back to him again. And then when you find very popular comments, even in the modern day on the Steve Hoffman forums, a very popular music forum, uh, you can understand what some of Houston's resentment to this mystery is, because again, you know, not a lot of people know about this album, as clearly read here by user Milan Key. It says, "I was a first-generation Beatle fan, and I had never heard of Thrillington until the internet came along." Yeah, that's not the the best testimony for MPL's marketing department, there, is it? Much to Houston's annoyance, I'm sure, McCartney would keep up the ruse for a further 12 years until the end of his worldwide tour on the 27th of November 1989. He was at a press conference and basically he was just asked if he was Thrillington and Paul replied with, What a great question to end the conference. The world needs to know. But seriously, it was me and Linda. We kept the secret going for a long time. Now the world knows. Personally, I really like the Thrillington story. I know it definitely wasn't profitable for Paul at all, 
but it's another one of those fantastic examples of Paul's eccentricities, his daring risk-taking, as well as his unending ability to have a laugh, not take his job too seriously, and turn something that could be quite banal and boring into something that he actually enjoys and engages with. You know, we're going to talk about why Paul released Thrillington when he did in a moment, but he did release it now, and he could have gone to any regular ad agency and promoted it through all the conventional channels, but he didn't. And because of all of his efforts, we are now still talking about the album in a much more active manner than it otherwise would have been. You know, perhaps Paul, in a sense, sensed that maybe there wasn't enough... uh, magic to the legacy of this Ram instrumental album. So, you know, it is artificial, it is a little pre-planned and thought out and possibly cynical, but it's a tapestry and it is a mythology that I've really enjoyed learning about. It adds a fun little layer to the album and it's all part of the fun atmosphere that the music creates. You know, I... And whilst it's kind of inconceivable for me that people didn't work this out in a more widespread manner straight away, I'm so glad that Paul didn't decide to promote this album conventionally because it's just so much fun, isn't it? Release and single! Thrillington came out in the UK on the 29th of April 1977 and in the US on the 17th of May. I know Houston alluded to poor sales in his last quote there, but come on, it's still a Paul McCartney album. Even the bad ones that don't sell well are still good sales figures for other artists. And with all of the effort Paul put into the promotion of this release, you would expect that the album would have been somewhat of a hit and given some returns, right? Not exactly. Figures have indeed been hard to come by, but according to our ever-reliable chartmasters.org, the album only sold around 80,000 copies, which is not enough for it to have charted in any territory. So, yeah, perhaps Hewson may have had a point there, eh, poorly. Rather famously, one of the factors behind these low sales figures was due to an overwhelming lack of interest on the part of the pop and rock media. Yes, the Evening Standard was talking about Thrillington, but once the album had come out, after all of the costly promotion and fake news, the only published review of Thrillington at the time, contemporaneously, was a brief mention in the random notes section in Rolling Stone. This means that if you lived outside of London, you more than likely not only had no idea who Percy Thrillington was and about his adventures, but you didn't even know about the album either. And, again, going back to a different quote from earlier, many fans wouldn't even be aware of this album's existence until the internet, decades later. Then, to add fuel to the confusion fire, we have to take into account all of the other McCartney releases that were coming out at the time. Firstly, we have the main wing stuff, with Thrillington being released right in between the With A Little Luck single and the main London Town album. Not only that, but this wasn't the only hidden pseudonym side project being released under an alternate name. On the 31st of May 1978, the Linda-composed Wings track Seaside Woman was released under the name Susie and the Red Stripes. This was 
a US only release, but still, it's almost like Paul was trying to clean house and get rid of some of the detritus in his back catalogue that was bugging him. And when you consider that this was also the time that he was working on hot hits and cold cuts again, it really starts to build a picture whereby you, you feel like Paul is almost like a self-imposed George Harrison at this point, where he's just got this ridiculous backlog that he wants to get out there. And maybe, just maybe, these are the first hints at Paul turning his entire laser focus away from Wings and touring, now that he has essentially been there and done that with Wings over America, which makes Thrington a kind of bookend of the period where Paul is entirely passionate about Wings. Overall, I would say that the release of Thrillington was a complete and utter failure, as much as I enjoy the esoteric nature of the whole narrative while sat here in the comfort of my chair many years later, in terms of business moves, this has just been a total misfire. We need to remind ourselves here of the pound-dollar cost it has taken us to get to this point. In the positive end of the spectrum, we have an album that was admittedly already written and ready to go. We had Hewson, who was already a heck of a lot cheaper to book than George Martin. And we had recording sessions that were wrapped up all tidily in a very workmanlike three days. But the album was recorded with like 50 plus people. They had to mix it and master it the next day as well. They rented the space, electricity bills, the tea, the coffee, the sandwiches. It all adds up. Then we're not going to fucking release it or let Richard Hewson tour with it. Then, seven years later, when they do release it, they don't associate it with moneymaker Paul McCartney at all, and instead, they spend a whole lot of money on this very strange media campaign that's really only centred in the heart of London, and it's released during the middle of punk rock when no one cares, and it also clashes with other releases with those who do care. I mean, if I haven't laid it on thick enough for you by this point, folks, just imagine this as a case study in how not to release a Paul McCartney instrumental version of Ram. Album cover! Paul, ever the man to give companies continual business, commissioned industry titans Hypnosis to design the front and rear album sleeve. The name Hypnosis, an amalgamation of Hypnosis and Gnostic, should be familiar to all of you by now as Paul has been using them ever since Band On The Run. They are the best and he uses them for a reason. The artist specifically chosen was a man named Jeff Cummings, who was responsible for giving us the iconic Wings Over America sleeve work, including those impossibly appealing and iconic and luscious inner sleeve designs. Cummings would also later go on to do the single sleeves for Say 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 and Temporary Secretary, as well as doing loads of album covers for Silver Sun. The front cover image for Thrillington is one that I've always found quite striking and memorable. We see this figure in a suit and white gloves playing the violin. Presumably Percy thrills Thrillington himself because you can only be a conductor if you have been first violinist and he's playing next to a plant and his music stand and this might not sound that striking to you but the figure in question has a giant ram's head and of course this is an obvious allusion to Paul and Linda McCartney's ram aka where this whole album got started 
But more than that, this has always been the definitive image of the real Percy Thrills Thrillington for me. Forget Paul Hewson or the Irish chap in the photos that have never surfaced. This is Percy. And for me, the idea of a man in a suit with a giant ram's head and horns is just pretty fucking cool. I like the contrast it offers between man and animal and wild and civilised. And these contrasts reflect the musical contrast that we find within the album. Whether it's a specific arrangement that contrasts a song or just the concept of doing a pop jazz big band album of one of Paul McCartney's great rock masterpieces. I mean, if you really want to get deep on the whole thing, there is more of a passing resemblance between Percy with a ram's head and the depictions of Baphomet or Satan with a goat's head. I mean, if you don't mind me all overthinking it too much, you could even maybe say that this devil imagery is saying something about the elite aristocracy like Percy. Maybe a little eyes wide shut vibe for you there. But I fear my mind will stray too close to Paul is dead territory, the dark side, if you will, if I go down that road. The rear of the album, though, also features some interesting stuff. Uh, aside from the history of Percy that is detailed on the back, we have another image of him, still with a ram head, conducting the band in the recording studio. Now, never having held nor seen a physical copy of the album, I'd only read about the fact that apparently you can see McCartney's face in the reflection of the studio control room window, and that was like one of the major clues. And then when I went on Google uh, to look it up for this episode, I was so disappointed, everyone. How was I disappointed? Well, because his face is so fucking massive and prominent and well-drawn and detailed on the back, you would have to be wildly ignorant to not only know that it was McCartney, but know that it also means that McCartney definitely is heavily involved in this album. And yeah, as we've said, McCartney is obviously having a lot of fun with this open secret and, and you know, tee-hee-hee. But again, that's just so blatantly in your face that it just ruins the fun. So, final opinions, I really love the front album cover. It's always been one that I've been drawn to, just based on the imagery alone and its concept. The rear of the album, yep, I do like how it continues the idea of Percy, and we get to see him in action, as it were, but just get rid of that McCartney face, or make it so transparent or small or hidden that it actually befits a mystery, you know? Critical Reception Right, as I mentioned earlier, this album was entirely without contemporary reviews upon release, and I couldn't even find the single Rolling Stones snippet that I did get. So yeah, I won't exactly be having much of a breadth of learned opinions from 1978. I mean, even Rock's back pages had sod all on this album, so we will be entirely relying on the friendly folk who have shared their opinions with us on the internet. Writing for AllMusic.com, Bruce Eder describes Thrillington as the following. One of the few genuinely rare, legitimate, commercial LP releases in Paul McCartney's output. Thrillington is an orchestral instrumental version of Paul and Linda McCartney's Ram album, and it is a very potent work in its own right. Arranged and conducted by Richard Hewson, it avoids the temptation to deliver flaccid elevator music in favour of precise playing and finely detailed arrangements. The orchestrations incorporate elements of big band swing and very elegantly realised pop music 
with occasional backing by scattered and vamped choruses. What makes these and the other cuts such a special pleasure for fans of the original album is that they all retain their beat, even as Houston's arrangements carry them in some surprising directions. The tragedy is that almost no one has heard of this most interesting of McCartney's albums. Now, that was actually the very first review I read of Thrillington. So, the fact that it was so positive really did put me in a good mood, and I was glad that at least someone out there loved this album as much as I do, and considers it almost as canon as I do as well. Though, this episode would not be complete without a look at some of the user reviews from RateYourMusic.com, and unlike our Family White episode, it actually seems that everyone out there has actually bothered to listen to this album and has reviewed it in similar numbers to a regular McCartney release. User D1116 says, This is a pretty harmless album on the surface. It's an instrumental version of Ram. What could be so bad about that? There isn't that much really. It's pretty cheesy at some points. Those fucking doo-wop sections in Heart of the Country blow. But... This is an album that shows how gifted Paul was at crafting songs with different, catchy parts that seamlessly work together. The only things the songs need is Paul. I mean, I don't totally disagree with this review, but I do have to pick up on one point. The doo-wop vocals in Heart of the Country are awesome. Thank you very much, and I won't hear anything else. Moving on. User Garfield Arches says... This instrumental version of Ram, with arrangements from Richard Hewson, are playful and intricate, but sometimes verge on cheese. Dear Boy and Heart of the Country get Muzak makeovers, with assistance from the Mike Sam singers. Ramon and Uncle Albert have new Bacharach-style lounge settings, whilst Three Legs boasts a big band jazz arrangements that takes it more towards New Orleans than Abbey Road. Most surprising of all is the reggae lilt given to Eat at Home, which shows Paul was most definitely involved with the music outside of the production. Hidden behind an alias for years, this is an entertaining enough listen, with Paul showing his light-hearted approach to the breadth of his talent, but you can absolutely hear how this level of whimsy bugged Lennon and Harrison when he brought it to the Beatles table. And... With that review, we also come across our second use of the word cheesy in these reviews. And I'm not going to sit here and try and convince you that Thrillington isn't cheesy, because it is. But that's because it is in the best of ways. And sentiments like that kind of annoy me a little. Like, if you are this deep into the McCartney fandom that you are listening to Thrillington the whole way through and writing a review about it, then surely you are at the point where you should know Paul well enough to know that these albums are par for the course by now. This is part of what he he does. This is who he is. Very twee, very me. And I, for one, am hungry for a bit of mac and cheese. Oh, come on, that was good. One thing I do want to point out, though, is that this is one of the very few reviews that actually bothers to mention Richard Hewson. And, I mean, even in the following interview that you're about to hear very shortly, I myself am guilty of constantly referring to this album as an album by Paul. Paul, so yeah, well done to that guy, but try not to fall into the same trap. User Rack tells the following. What the album highlights is just how musical Ram was. It also shows you just how blissfully odd and poppy Macca was at the time. 
He'd move more headfirst into Schmoltz soon and was teetering on that fine line with Ram, but Ram was balanced quite well. Songs like Ram On, Smile Away and Dear Boy work wonderfully as instrumentals. Too Many People is just awesome here as well. This may have had the vibe of a throwaway, but to me as a big Ram fan, this only adds to the experience. A few arrangements fail, but the rest is very solid and nothing is bad. I'd highly recommend this, even as a standalone. And I think my opinions are probably most congruent with that review there. I, I don't think any of the arrangements particularly fail. Um, some of them don't quite work for me personally as much as they should. I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't call that a failure. But yeah, for every second that passes with this podcast, this should be more and more clear for you that any Ram fan should also be a Thrillington fan. And finally, I want to cap it off with the only other semi-professional professional review I could find of Thrillington on the internet, and it's by Mark Smotroff whilst writing for Audiophile.com. He says, This is schmaltzy instrumental arrangements, cornball-like rollicking, and even some faux psychedelia dancing around the edges of the mix. It's a jolly good romp if you can get your head into the mindset for it. Thrillington might even be a good oddball demo disc for some of you out there in audiophile land. So the overall impression we can get here from this very unofficial list of ragtag opinions from the online community is that everyone seems to like Thrillington enough or in a a semi-ironic way or even just as this uh, fun oddity that's cool to know about. But apart from the opening one, there doesn't seem to be as many mega fans of Thrillington as I would like. Because I really do feel like I could talk about this album with someone for an hour. Well, actually, luckily, I, I think I might be able to put that to, to, the, to the test. Because my guest, who I've already spoken with at the time of this recording, is also a mega fan of this album. Spoiler alert, just like me. And hopefully we'll be able to sell it you a little more effectively than these people have. And without any further ado, let's do just that. Let's cut to the live feed. One, two, three. Okay, folks, now that you know what Thrillington is, it's high time you knew what we think of it. And yes, I did say we, as finally we're going to bring on my guest. And this isn't his first, second, or even third, I don't think, time to get on the show. But uh, shitty internet connections have kept us apart. My guest today, folks, is an incredibly accomplished writer. And I've read quite a lot of his stuff, I realised, whilst I was researching this episode. As a culture vulture, he's well-versed in film, music, and TV, and he's written extensively for WeAreCult.com, Culture Sonar, he's done pieces for Record Collector, The Irish Post, and stuff like that. He's also interviewed many of the characters that we've discussed on this podcast, including Eric Stewart, Alan Parsons, Lawrence Juba, and maybe one that we might bring up later in this episode. He's a man also widely known for his facial hair, and has kindly decided to (laughs) come back on the show for God knows how many times. He's jumped through so many hoops to come on. He's a real gent, a real good sport. Everyone, please welcome Ewan Ling onto the show. Ewan, what's going on, my friend? Not too bad. The facial hair is a reference to the fact that I just tweeted at Graham Linehan um, against his anti-trans stances, and he responded and called me a beard. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, Graham Uh, Linehan. Father Ted's hilarious, but my God, you're a controversial figure, aren't you? My, My word. Controversial is one way of, putting, of calling it. I'm 
there's a there's a word I would like to describe him, but but I don't think I could get away with it on a podcast. No, but it's it's like it's like when when you find out that like Morrissey's into really far right wing politics as well. It's like what? Where did that come from? Where? What is going? But we're not gonna we're not gonna go into politics. This is not that podcast. Yeah. And of course, Ewan, everyone actually will have heard you recently as a guest on one of our uh, friendly rival podcasts. Shall we say uh, Two Legs? with Andy Nichols and mm-hmm. the wonderful Tom Hunyady. Did you have fun on that show? Oh, it was tremendous fun. Uh, the three of us singing along to Paul McCartney's numerous idiosyncratic lyrics. It's good old fun. <laughs> well, Ewan, yep. fun time's over. It's time to get to work, my friend. Oh. As with all of my first-time guests, even though it's not technically your first time, I'll begin with the most British question ever. Where are you calling from and what's the weather like? Well, I just happen to be in England, and it seems to be quite nice. And it seems to be helping our internet connection as well, not having to cross international waters. The first time we spoke, originally we were meant to be doing Press to Play, and we were meant to be doing something even further back than that, I can't even remember. But I, I do remember you had a flatmate that was moving out at the time, and there was some a real loud kerfuffle there, and... One of the real benefits of having you on was the fact that you actually interviewed one of the men that was involved in this album that we're going to be talking about today. Of course, we're going to be talking about Thrillington, and you actually interviewed Richard Hewson, the conductor and arranger. I did. Is that a hint at your fandom of Thrillington? Like, let's just lay your cards on the table. Are you a fan of, of this album, Ewan? I am. I mean, I, I consider it an accompaniment to Ram, as I think that's how you need to, you need to listen to Ram, and then you can listen to Thrillington. I mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think Thrillington makes sense as a standalone album, but I think it's a wonderful accompaniment. And I think McCartney's greatest mistake was releasing it six years after he released Ram, which I think Houston agreed with. Yeah, one of the things I want I wanted to ask you about was like, do you reckon that if this was released, say back in late 71 or 72, that this would have been something that he would have like, possibly carried on with throughout Wings and done it every now and then, whenever Wings, say, had a big album. Like, we, we could have had Thrillington comes back to do Band on the Run, maybe a live concerto for Wings Over America, maybe Thrillington comes back for Tug of War. Do you reckon that could have been like a creative vent for McCartney, maybe? I don't think so. I think Wings was paramount to his mindset for the for the remainder of the seventies. I think it's I, sort of Thrillington was a one and done. It, speculating as to what McCartney's going to do is going to lead you nowhere. I mean, he's going he's he, he's going to he wants to write Red Rose Speedway as a as a double album and then gets talked into releasing it as a single album. He follows Give Ireland Back to the Irish with Mary Had a Little Lamb. There is no logic to the man. <laughs> Yes, you want things to go one way, but it is another with McCartney. Obviously, the big yeah. elephant in the room, and you've, and you've just touched on this, Paul and Linda McCartney's Ram. When did you first come across Ram? Where do you stand on it now? What were your initial thoughts? How do you rank it in the grand scope of his oeuvre? Well, I, I knew Backseat of My Car and Heart of the Country from a Wingspan album I had when I was 16. Mm. I still think And Too Many People is on that album as well. I'd say those are the three standout tracks. I think those are the three standalone brilliant tracks, of, but, but I think every track is a masterwork. Mm-hmm. I think it's, I would say it's top five McCartney. I don't think it's his best album. I think Tug of War is number one and in personal favourites, it doesn't quite match London Town or 
or flowers in the dirt, but there's a huge amount of serial amount of invention and it feels like a natural successor to Abbey Road. That's very true, yeah. It is, like, um, I've just done my Red Rose Speedway List with Sam episode, and whilst I was doing that, I couldn't help but see that everything that happens in that album as a reaction to wildlife, and, and you can see the same pattern here, almost everything on Ram is this overreaction, essentially, to McCartney 1 being this very, you know, home-based, small production. But that entirely yeah. works in its favour, whereas maybe the overreactions on Red Rose Speedway might have been just not in the right direction shall we say but as we all know McCartney is the worst at culling his own material Ram for me personally uh, if you if anyone has listened to this show for any amount of time will know that Ram's probably my favorite I am one of those Ram people I am the I am the revolver guy in terms of the Beatles as well I am very much in favor of those prestige albums did Thrillington change the way you approach Ram at all no, no, I'm, I, I don't get. If I were to merit a, a star rating to Ram, it's four and a half, five stars. Mm-hmm. I think there's a there's an emotional punch and a guttural punch to the likes of Wanderlust and Here Today and and the title track of Tug of War that I don't think is on Ram. It doesn't have that emotional guttural punch that John and George were writing at the time, probably in reaction to the fact that he wanted to be different to them. And he he wasn't looking, he he was looking to be clever rather than to be full of heart, shall we say. That's mm. not a good way to say it. But I, I think it's an extraordinarily well-produced and extraordinarily inventive album. And a lot of that invention is going to spill over onto the album that we're going to talk about today, of course, because it took me quite a while to realise, though, that... It sounds stupid to say, but if you like Ram, you are going to like this album. It is just a remake. And it is so Mm -hmm. rare in music that artists are so referential. You know, we we might have Lennon doing a bit of She Loves You in All You Need Is Love. But that's about it. And I remember coming across this and just thinking, oh my God, this could be the most hilariously self-indulgent thing ever put to vinyl. Because it's like, oh, hey, Ewan, have you heard? McCartney's doing a cover album? Ah. Really, who's he covering? Himself. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and there is definitely that element to it, and part of that is the appeal to me. Like this is going to be an album that is essentially just pure McCartney, as the compilation album yes. would would later say. And you could think of this whole album as him exercising demons, you know, getting out this type of music that he wouldn't yeah. be able to get away with, even even on his solo stuff, let alone Wings, you know, the band that essentially kind of cut the kibosh on this whole album. But one of the things I wanted to ask you was, do you reckon there's a possibility that maybe there were things he wasn't happy about with Ram the first time around? Like, I know that's heresy, but maybe Thrillington was a a chance to improve certain things? I think it was his way of showing the critics, and I'm actually paraphrasing Robert Rodriguez from Fab Four here, Mm. that this might have been his way of saying, it's it's actually replete with melody. I've got this wonderful composer, arranger, to imbue my personal compositions with his ear for masterful arrangements. I think it was something like that. That does make Mm. a lot of sense. Um, I mean, McCartney's ego is well noted, both in the literature and on this podcast. Something else I thought about Thrillington as well that I wanted to get your opinion on. Obviously, you're aware of the whole Paul and Linda McCartney credit aspect to the whole uh, of Ram, and it's a financial move, blah, blah, blah. Do you reckon Thrillington could have been part of the original same scheme as well? I'm not sure. I mean, 
I, I think people discredit Linda, even though she did have a, a say in his songwriting. I mean, the best part of Live and Let Die is the reggae, what does it matter to you? Yes. That, that was Linda's contribution. I mean, she was the one who came up with that. I mean, fine, that might be more of an arrangement. And yes, as people pointed out, the only reason she's get involved is because she's sleeping with the lead singer of the band, <laughs> which, a bit, which, yeah, it's a scurrilous thing to say, but... Uh, the, the money would have, even if she weren't credited on those songs, the money would have gone into her pot anyway. So I don't see why the why it's such a big deal. And Yoko Ono was duly co-credited on Imagine, much to much critical scorn. Yes, but as we all know, it's much easier to rag on Paul in the literature just because that's what everyone seems to be doing. Obviously, as well, by the time Thrillington came out in '78. The Beatles foursome had officially dissolved, so there was no issue with who got to keep the five quid that Thrillington probably did make for McCartney in the end. It was actually re-released back in 2018 uh, on vinyl. You and I need it now. I need this. Yeah. One of the best things about this episode was the fact that uh, I just gave you a list of a couple of topics, and you were like, oh, Thrillington. And I was like, oh, wow. He, I, I didn't think someone would actually choose Thrillington with such gusto. And... It's an album that was kind of in the back of my mind. I was aware of it. I'd probably listened to it once really early on in my fandom, like back at uni like five years ago or something, and just kind of locked it away in my mind and never thought about it again. And when you said Thrillington, I was like, oh, okay, this is a fantastic chance to kind of get to know this album again. Yeah. Surprise, surprise, it's been a real fun time. I've had so much fun just exploring the world of this album as well, especially the whole persona thing. Yes. Do you reckon the persona was, you know, thought out back in 72, or was this a definite uh, stoner 1978 kooky idea? Well, when I spoke to Richard Hewson, he, he outright rubbished the idea. He said if Paul had just released it as McCartney instrumental, it would have sold a lot better. And I can understand from Hewson's point of view that he put blood and hard work into this, <laughs> that it didn't sell must have been a bit disparaging. Yeah, and it didn't get much critical acclaim didn't even get much critical notation it was just like one rolling stone extras section it's such a shame really but it's not the first time mccartney's done something like this though it's probably more akin to susie and the red stripes than say sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band you know this is something added in post yes it's not like mccartney i oh, you know i have to be percy thrillington in the studio or i can't conduct it's nothing like that do you think people actually fell for it, though? Do you think people ever in the pre-internet world of 1978 uh, fell for such a ruse? Oh, what was Percy Threnton with Paul yeah. McCartney's blessing had rearranged? No, I think I think everyone knew that was talking bollocks. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I think everyone. I, I, when I read the Tom Doyle book and when a, a journalist brought it up to him in 1989, Paul just said, "Yeah, you've given us away." Ha ha! And it, it all seemed like a bit of fun. I mean. They didn't seem to be in. Yeah. <laughs> that's so. That's so true. Even yeah. the um, there's a direct quote in the liner notes that says Percy Thr- Thrillington is not Paul McCartney, and it's like, oh come on, you're not even trying there. I just love the idea of him ringing up fifty different newspapers around the country just to stir stir up some buzz. You, you know, you you could probably do some sort of pratfall rom com where there's some guy who really does believe in Percy. Well, he did. He hired a model in Ireland, I believe, but in the end, he decided he wasn't Percy Thrillington enough, which I find morbidly hilarious because Percy Thrillington does not exist. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. And I've read that there were photos taken, and you could bet your ass I spent an hour scouring Google. I was like, they've got, there's got to be one photo 
of the Percy Thrillington model, and I just couldn't find it. It was such a disappointment. If you've got one of them, obviously drop us an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. But, Ewan, I think, I think we've laid the groundwork pretty firmly here. Maybe let's get on to the album proper. Yes. Folks, if you don't know the track listing of what we're going to be talking about here, Shock Horror, it's going to be the exact same as Ram. <laughs> Predictably, we begin with Too Many People, the opening gambit for this entire concept. Back office yeah. where you bought the scotch. <laughs> <laughs> And for me, it doesn't waste any time in selling itself to you. Like, like straight away, it just clicked in my head. Oh, duh, this is just Ram again, done really well by Paul McCartney in the same year that he did the actual fucking album. And right off the bat, I really enjoyed the interpretation. Yes. Ewan, what did you think of Too Many People? Well, I've written here, and it's off. Tattered whispers making way for the propulsive, ponderous precision of wind instruments. It's effortlessly exhilarating. That would be a fantastic quote to have on a, a box, wouldn't it? That would be fantastic. <laughs> but you are right, though. You know, the production here is incredibly strong. And not to take away from Hewson's like, very inventive work that he's going to show across this album, but I think they're going to play it safe here. And he's shown that he can emulate that George Martin style very faithfully, if you know what I mean. Yes, he, he got a lot of crap in the Beatles world because he did the arrangement for the infamous Long and Winding Road. But he said in the interview with me that he wasn't happy, but he was under Spectre's orders to put in to overlay with harps and choirs and etc. etc. Well, he probably literally had a gun to his head, you and you know, we really can't hold anything against him there if he's working with Phil Spectre. Uh, that, that's an eerily accurate joke. Yes, what, what a gifted producer Spectre was. Is he's still alive? Yeah, um, I absolutely love the terrible made-for-TV movie where Al Pacino plays him. Purely watch it just because it's it's Al Pacino, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that did make me sigh with relief when I first heard this song was the fact that they'd kept the drums in the live band because so much of what made Ram Ram is Denny Sywell's powerhouse playing. So that, absolutely. Oh yeah. Oh, it's it's incredibly reassuring. Denny Denny Sywell is such an unsung hero. Yeah, wonderful. I, I I recently interviewed Lawrence Juber and he very philosophically talked about the differences between Denny Sywell and Steve Holly. Holly being this English rock and roll, almost heavy metal drummer, and Sywell being a New York jazz swinger. And he said they both they both can bring it to the music. 
I just wish we had that original take of Road All Night. We'll, we'll never know. Apparently that was Denny Sywell's greatest drumming moment. Oh, well. A nice little uh, affectation to this song. We get essentially some Sergeant Pepper's uh, orchestral tuning ups and like little chitter chatter at the start, but it's like a little seedier. Yeah. Like you hear them like chatting about whiskey bottles and stuff like that. It was a nice little uh, touch <laughs> of thought. Which, given that given that Sergeant Pepper was now celebrating its tenth anniversary in 1977, is a nice little throwback. Ah, good point. Yeah, good point. People pe- people would have been very very much aware of it as well. Also, towards the end, Paul shows us that it's not just going to be a typical classical album in the regular sense as well, because he's also going to give us this really like, slick, funky, psychedelic bass that I really wish he would have experimented more with Wings. And this is going to be an album of some pretty killer bass, if you don't mind me saying. Pressing on, we come on to, you guessed it, Three Legs. You, went, you mentioned earlier to me that this was a, a pretty sexy rendition of this song, did you not? Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think I did. It is quite sultry. Yes. Da, 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 it's a, there's a smouldering saxophone. and Of course, the original was noted by John and George, or was it George and Ringo, as being a Beatle dig, which Mark Lewison brought up in his chat shows that, that actually was a reference to a row in Abbey Road, which I may have spoiled for those who didn't see the show. Yeah, no, um, apparently they sawed one of the legs off Yoko's bed. That is a fantastic story. I like any tale that involves George Harrison's biscuits. Yes. Yeah, this is a a real kind of sleazy, big brass band affair. Oh, yeah. And whilst I like that sound a lot on the rest of this album, I, I kind of feel mm. like the acoustic kookiness of the original Three Legs maybe wasn't yes. the best thing to translate into a big brass band thing. This is a little step down in quality for me, which was a little worrisome for me early on. Mm. But this is a bit too formal, maybe, for me, for something like Three Legs. And the translation's probably a little bit clunky. But just like on the original Ram itself, even the worst song on the record is still going to be pretty damn good. Yes. Not too much to say about this one, if, if I'm honest. It didn't go down all that well with me. I'm, I'm taking you probably like it a little bit more. Well, I, my favourite tracks on these are the ones that wholly reinvent themselves, the ones that are a little too similar to the original, like like Backseat of My Car, I feel like are fine, but he's but it's just literally translating McCartney's vision. This one, it's tearing up the map, and Houston's bringing his stamp to it. And when I listen to this, 
I feel like taking my clothes off and smushing around in that cabaret vaudeville style. I think it's excellent. I know what you mean about that. There are a lot of tracks on this album that actually do make me want to get up and dance and move around. It's a very uh, stirring release, definitely. Yes. I totally agree with your point, though, on the best songs are the ones that reinvent the uh, yeah. the wheel. But I'll be interested because I've got two that I that I have in, in mind and I'm not going to tell you what they are. So be interested to see what they are later yeah. on. Next up is Ramon. Which, yes. rather strangely, having followed on from the three legs, which to me was probably the least faithful adaptation, and now mm-hmm. you know we come on to ukulele and backing vocals, which is probably yes. the most directly faithful to the original. I would agree. Now, this is probably because Ramon already is an incredibly stripped-down and simple composition, especially for Ram, and there's only so much you mm-hmm. can do with an orchestral version of this song but i still really love what they did with it here mm. this is what this is one of the standout tracks for me i did this has already gone on to my personal mccartney playlist it was the first hint for me that it's this is going to be a truly a, eclectic work it's not just all going to be big brass band tracks and some of these songs might actually rival my love for the original song like can we just talk about the utterly whimsical saxophone performance on this on this song like the romantic melodrama reinterprets mm. McCartney's tender falsetto so inventively. I was so gripped by it. And for me, this was the real sultry one. I was like, ooh, Ramon, ooh, ooh, indeed. It was, it was absolutely yes. gripping for me. And then you've got those very creative and explorative percussion section going on with like that, those like tippity-tappity brush strokes. And also weird, like, gated drum effects that are like, 10 years too early to be gated drum effects, but they sound fantastic. Yeah, Yeah, I love this one. I absolutely really love this interpretation. It's got all the innocence and the whimsy, uh, whilst still being quite unique as well, I feel. Yes, I've written, The lilting woodwind undulates behind a gravelly acoustic. Bin the singers, and it's a killer track. Oh, you're you're not a fan of the backing vocals? A bit too similar to the original track, maybe? I think they're a bit too... On this instance, I think on Heart of the Country, they work wonderfully diving in and out and swimming amongst the melody here. It reminds me of The Long and Winding Road, where the choir just storms in and swamps everything underneath. This is majestic, goddammit. Yeah, I do get what you mean there. Uh, 
it can be a little bit syrupy. But let's move on to a song with some incredible vocals on an instrumental album. Uh, we're going to talk about Dear Boy. wonderful oh this is the song in particular that i was most looking forward to talking about ewan because this is the song that allowed me to get this album this is an album of risks he's going to take many risks and this is one that oh my god but he just stuck the landing flawlessly isn't this song just a joy to listen to oh it's wonderful yes i've written a propose to melody this is the most vocal heavy it's simply gorgeous and we're going to get some doo-wop vocals, and how that is just irresistible not to sing along to. It's it's quite majestic and sombre, but it's also really swinging. It's just got that, you just want to click along to it, and the upright bass is so, is so slick. Uh, it's, probably, yes. it's probably the smoothest thing on the record. Yes. Well, I'll be playing that when I have my swingers party, and, and people will look at me disappointed. They were expecting to take their clothes off. Oh dear boy, you know that's that, that's what that's what they'll say. Um, there's also a, a little bit of like lounge barroom style piano played at the end of this, yes. and it's almost like a little light motif because it appears again, yes. most notably in the backseat of my car. And I, I've literally only noticed that on my last listen through, just before this. So uh, it's quite um, it's another little element of McCartney m- making it slightly different from the main record. Yeah, it's a bit of prog noodling, and this album came out in 1977, where the Sex Pistols did everything they could to kill prog rock. So it's considering that in the same year that Paul releases Amongst Anarchy in the UK and White Riot and The Damned, that he releases Mull of Kintyre, the fact that he also releases a mini prog suite shows that the man really was quite a brave guy. Yeah, I was going to talk about that specifically. Like, what was it about 1978 that made it essential for him to release this? Because he actually released it between With a Little Luck and the album of London Town. So he's he's just flooding the market with the most anti-punk stuff ever, almost saturating it to some degree. Like, he probably should have at least waited till London Town had, had come out, but... You are right. It's almost in the same vein as something like Mary Had a Little Lamb, where where he's like, I'm so uncool. I am the coolest thing on the planet because I am just going to do what I want. And and it is that it is that almost insane bravery that personally keeps me coming back to Paul time and time again over someone like Lennon or Harrison. Yes, I agree. He had the he had the most musically varied and interesting career. I don't know if his lyrics ever could quite compete with the best of Lennon and Harrison's, but 
as a musician, as a composer, as an arranger, as a visionary, he's unequaled in the Beatles sphere. Oh, but come on, could you get any of uh, Lennon's albums to have this kind of treatment? Could Richard Hewson do no. do this with Imagine? Definitely not. He could have done it with Plastic Gono. I'd have loved to hear him do Mother. And then we're, we're going to close out side one with Uncle Albert, Admiral Halsey. Fan favourite for us all, I am sure. You know, we're, we're going to step back to big brass band mode, at least for some parts of this track. Because again, like the original, it's all over the place in the most exciting way possible. Yes. It's like Monkberry Moon Delight for me. This is another reinvention of the wheel. And we're kind of just going to basically do it again, but somehow make it fresh and be an utter joy from start to finish. This, again, is another highlight of the album for me, and I can totally see why it was chosen as the single. Yes, I've written a pictorial piccolo opens Uncle Albert, opening the tea cosy decor in a newer, fresher setting. It is so British again, you know. We don't even need to hear the butter pies and all of the lyricism. It's still got that pomp and that, you know, rural Britannia majesty, especially during the hands-across-the-water parts, like, they're just as rousing and as inspiring as they were on the original record. Yes. I absolutely love this one. The part I have to point out, though, is the Admiral Halsey bit, because it just put the biggest stupid grin on my face, because, like, it starts with that, like, really foreboding piano line that really misdirects you entirely before shifting into this little... It's like a little rinky-dink vaudeville piano segment, and I fell in love. And this is a song that evokes an era of songwriting that Paul obviously wishes he was a part of. Yes. And it's an indulgent in the swear word, granny music. Um, Again, that could be your thing, that might not be, but for me, it's just so diverse and brave and entirely McCartney again that... Yeah. I'm totally helpless. We, you know, we get the full gamut of strange, weird, definitely not conventional pop styles. And yeah. how the fuck does he balance it again? Because like he he just about got away with it on the original Uncle Albert, and now he's going to change all the styles again, like shift everything to the left, and it still works. It it really is a marvel for me. Yes, I think it's a it's a minor masterpiece for sure. I think it lends itself to that abstract comfortable middle-class existence that both that both that permeates both renditions of the song and i think i think actually lennon actually quite enjoyed the little gypsy run around section yes oh, that's the wrong uh, 
or, or was it the hands across the water bit? I'm not sure. Either way, it's a good song for Lennon to uh, say that he liked because it's one of the few songs on the album that doesn't bash him in some sort of interpretation. I'm sure some some crazy Paul is dead person has read too much in, into the lyrics somewhere and found a reference in Uncle Al, but I'm sure. It's a little wanting that Lennon thought that Dear Boy was about him when it's quite... When it's, I mean, the arrogance of that. I mean, there aren't times the Beatles' arrogance drives me up the wall. They, Beatles and the Beatles' authors thought that once they stopped touring, Brian Epstein's life fell apart. I mean, Epstein or Epstein, I'm sure, had a complicated life and had had issues outside of the Beatles. It's a, there's an, an, an undue arrogance to think that because they've stopped, his life has fallen to pot. Oh, no, I, I entirely get that. I've been listening to a, a fantastic Beatles podcast called Another Kind of Mind, and they were talking about how like even the language against McCartney in most of the Beatles like literature is kind of almost mm. like skewed to the feminine like McCartney is a diva he's like conniving oh, wow, and, yeah. and shifty McCartney's hurt yeah. whereas Lennon's angry so like McCartney's always like really passive and weak whereas Lennon's like ah oh, matcha matcha lucha lucha all all that crap yes and it's it, it's a point that I really have to agree with it's like people are almost going back to the Lennon remembers into interviews as the canon now, which I don't want at all. Yes, I can imagine that. Yeah, it's like, oh, guys, did, did you not realise Lennon actually told a lot of bullshit? I don't want, I don't want to break it to you, but you know. Yeah, I imagine. I mean, oh, Paul broke up the Beatles. Oh, Lennon was on heroin for the entire like last two years of the band. We're not going to talk about that. We're not going to talk about that because you know we've got apples to sell. Right, next on our track listing is Smile Away. For me, Ewan, don't take this personally, but I have to tell this to someone. I would probably consider this to be the lower end of quality on Ram. Ooh. Yeah, for me, it's one of the songs that's a bit of a generic rocker for me. Not as much as another song we're going to get onto later. And because of this, I actually found that the shift to a big brass band setting actually really made the song a lot more interesting for me. And I really enjoyed it a lot more than possibly I did. Like, comparatively, I still like the real Smile Away much more, but in terms of its placement on the album, I find this to be a, a much higher point. We get some more phenomenal bass from Paul. It's absolutely filthy with this, like, a chug-a-lug dirge to it. And just it's just full of energy. It, 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 it It's just got a life that only really Paul's vocal had on the original recording, whereas here, all the instrumentation is, is as powerful as Paul was. Yes, the bass, actually, I'm going to my original article. 
The bass is played by Herbie Flowers, who, of course, is best known for the Walk on the Wild Side bass. But yeah, it's it, it's just uh, enjoyably quite rock and roll. I, I, I wanted to ask you though, you know those little noises? Are they meant to be sheep, perhaps, or a ram? Dare I say? Is that meant to be the joke? I'm not sure. Well, that's a very good interpretation. Um, I, I, I hadn't heard those those, those little noises. Uh, Perhaps they are. They could be str- they could be stringed instruments. I actually agree with you that this is an improvement because I do find the guitar-heavy posturing on the original a little wanting. It does feel a little derivative of we need to have a heavy metal track. So let's push it in. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I I I don't think it merits a place. I think I heard, I heard on I am the Egg Pod that John Rain suggested a woman a why. That that could have been on the on the album instead, and I'm thinking, yeah, that's a better rocker. Oh, 100 percent. But it's just so long, and you'd have to trim something else. And like, you can't look McCartney in the face and say, "Backseat in my car's got to be under three minutes." Oh, uh, when did you last write yesterday? You know, it'll just be one of those situations again. I like Paul, but you also those you also those old blazy old Look, Paul, whatever you want me to play, I'll play it for you. Oh, oh, God. I cannot, I cannot wait for the new Let It Be to come out. Sorry to digress. I absolutely cannot wait for the new Let It Be to come out. Hopefully it'll be the first thing I see in the cinema after coronavirus has wiped out half the population. Who knows? Jesus. <laughs> that joke's not staying in, don't worry. Oh, the world's falling apart. The world's falling apart, and so am I. <laughs> Either way, Smile Away is just another really enjoyable track for me, but I think it's clear to say that at least I'm incredibly biased towards this album already, so you know I think I'm going to be putting quite a positive spin on a lot of this stuff, including the next song, Ewan, which is Heart of the Country. Again, rather like Uncle Albert Admiral Halsey, this is another song I fell in love with because it's essentially uh, a song performed by the country hams before they were ever even a thing. Mm-hmm. This is pure Jim McCartney at its finest. Like, you know, through pure yes. cheese, this song has won me over. Yeah, it's a gorgeous melody. Wow, wow, wow. My friend Tom called this song the greatest stoner track of all time, and none of that is uh, present in this particular version. It is so innocent, and like I've said, Paul so clearly wishes he was living in Tin Pan Alley in the 1920s, and he wouldn't have been able to get away with this, even on like a B-side 
of one of his singles and this is just such a great little avenue for us to to peek inside his head like you know in, in the simpsons when it'll like do a shot of inside homer's brain and it'll be a, a monkey banging two symbols together or something like if you cut to if you cut to a shot of inside paul, paul mccartney's brain this is the music you hear just it's it's so wonderfully like a, uh, it almost like if, if you look out the window now it reminds me of a, of a British summertime mm. yes rather than like scat vocals we've now got doobie doo vocals which keeps in theme with the original Dear Boy because that also had some kind of scat vocals to it if I'm not mistaken you're right yeah no I, th- I, th- I think it's I think it's simply gorgeous and McCartney's pastoral passage comes to life as an inspired vocal medley I couldn't have put it better myself, you. And if you did a podcast, it would probably be about ten minutes long, and we'll probably get more downloads because of it. Because you could probably be a lot more consistent. I'm gonna have to write that one down. Let you and do my notes for me. <laughs> I, I charge thirty euro an hour. That's oh, okay. That might be that might be worth it. At this rate, you never know. Okay. Um, that's probably like one. That's like one month's worth of Patreon, I think. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> So, we come on to the song, Ewan. That was going to be the deal-breaker for me. Um, No matter how good the rest of this album was, if Thrillington got this next one wrong, there would be no redemption. And that song, of course, is Monkberry Moon Delight. And I'm going to let you take it away with this one. What were your thoughts on this song? So I've written in my notes, psychotropic and original, psychotic and reimagination. This is one of the few genuinely terrifying numbers in the McCartney canon. I love it. Yeah, I completely share those sentiments. I was so scared. I was so scared. I, I had this incredible anticipation coming into this one. And then Paul the Bastard like teases you with more Sergeant Pepper-esque orchestral tuning. And it's like, 15 of the longest seconds of my life. And then you have yeah. these, like, these really like dramatic high-strung strings going, like, screeching in. And then it just launches yes. into the most badass, easy-listening track ever created. Yeah. What's up with those trumpets? It's so Hollywood. It's, oh, it's, 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 yeah. it's borderline perfect. It's a borderline perfect 
interpretation of of this song. I mean, the fact that Paul did it means no one else could have done it better, really. Yes. Nobody does better. Like Houston here, his choices, the way he decides to turn Paul's like very uh, raw post beatle breakup gravelly vocals and then turn it into this distorted, distressed brass wheeze. It's such yes. an interesting choice. Like, I, like no one else could have could could have thought that. And again, that probably goes goes back to his jazz roots and just being able to think outside of the conventional pop box in that way. No, well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you hear that George Martin was in awe of this young kid from Liverpool who was, you know, who could just dream up yesterday in his sleep and come out with these extraordinary chords. Yeah, this is one of the songs that. You just cannot help but sing along to it. Like it is yeah. so catchy in that in that way. Like you can't help but go ta 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 along along with it. Absolutely. I'm not sure if people would have uh, actually listened to this on easy listening radio stations. Perhaps it would have fared better as a genuine theme for some sort of big budget blockbuster. Mm-hmm. I guess the fact that McCartney's the composer is the only reason it hasn't been snapped up for, say, National Treasure 7 or something like that, you know? Perhaps, yeah. Yeah. No, what I also find interesting is that um, what I consider to be McCartney's finest hour in his entire canon is Eleanor Rigby because it's such a shiver, shimmering, scintillating, superb piece of work. Mm-hmm. But people have noted that the strings are somewhat repin- reminiscent of the Alfred Hitchcock psycho theme and i think this at the beginning throws its hat back because there is a certain dun, 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 that room that is yeah that reminds yeah. yeah that's a really good observation moving on to eat at home other song for me Ewan that immediately comes to mind in terms of the the lesser borderline filler material for Ram and again yes. that's why the reinterpretation from a generic rocker into a kind of obladi oblada style reggae yes is, I have that written yeah, dude come on did you ever think you needed to hear a faux reggae version of Eat at Home I didn't think I did but I now know that I needed to hear it and I'm all the better because of it well, the thing is, while the White Album's version, the 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 canon version of Obla oh de Obla oh da isn't one I'm too keen on, but the more reggae-centric version that we hear on Anthology 2 or 3, mm-hmm. with brass undulating and the, the, the bass m- much higher in the mix and you know the acoustic guitars, I think that's superb. Yeah, when, when um, Paul does it live now, it kind of feels like a halfway point between the Anthology 1 and the White Album one, and yeah, that definitely sounds the better for it as well. 
think about it, many bands were focusing on, on reggae at that point. 10CC had a number one hit with Dreadlock Holiday. Of course, of course. In terms of sequencing, the shift from Monkberry Moon Delight to this lightweight tone was certainly the right move for me, because the, the, the song is so joyful. Yes, it's a bit like on the White Album, doesn't Long 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 follow Helter Skelter? It's been a while since I've listened to the White Album. Yes, and Revolution 9 goes into Good Night as well. Another song, though, that I'm not sure people would have actually listened to in 72, 78, or any time, really, but as a McCartney fan, another another fantastic time. Yes, I've only realised that for a long, for years when I thought he meant Eat at Home, I thought it was said with complete innocence, but no, there's something much more libidinous to what he means when he wants to eat at home. Oh, you didn't know this song was about eating... It took me a little bit, yeah. I, I now realise it's about, it's about two people going down on each other or eat, or, or eating protein, shall we say. Or, yeah. yeah, it's a product that's definitely not on the Linda McCartney product range. Let's just say that. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Penultimately, we press on to the song about the lovely Linda, a.k.a. Long-Haired Lady. And I'm not sure if it was like album fatigue or whether I've got latent issues with the real long haired lady because it's again, it's not one of my favorite tracks on the album, but I, I do like it when I listen to it, like as you know, from start to finish. Yeah, but I think like it's not like three legs where I feel like it's the wrong style put to put to this, but I guess fundamentally the thing that i love so much about the original long haired lady is Paul and Linda's joint vocal performance and their intricate harmonies. Yeah, 100% agree. You know, no matter what Houston does here, it's just not going to match up for me. No, the original is this rustic, desert-centred, Western Americana feel. Like It sounds... There was this 2012 track called We're Coming Home, which I knew before Long Hair Lady. I don't know if that's the original title, but like, I mean, the, the chorus goes, We're Coming Home. Mm. Ah, it, it was played everywhere in 2012 and 2013. And then when I heard Long Haired Lady, I saw a link between those two tracks, which just goes to show how ahead of his time McCartney was. But yes, you're right, that, that rustic, down-to-earth, grittier, agrarian sensibility just doesn't translate to ornate, smouldering, symphonic textures. I don't know about you, though, but there was something about the kooky percussion and the wacky brass... That reminded me of 
the classic BBC One comedy Only Fools and Horses. Which was ironic, though, because Uncle Albert Admiral Halsey actually features in an episode of Only Fools and Horses. Uh, Makes sense. And Paul, of course, would also go on to write the TV theme for Zoo Gang, so it makes sense that he's got experience in this kind of jaunty, throwaway, catchy style, you know? And, of course, on the Venus and Mars album, he finishes his gorgeous liturgical ensuite uh, about elderly people with... With, uh, with his rendition, his guitar heavy metal rendition of Crossroads. I feel utterly ashamed that I didn't realise for years that Crossroads ends the album for the lonely old people to watch. You know when you see an optical illusion and you can't see it any other way after, I was like, oh my god, how did I not know that? Well, I don't know about you, but I was born in 1993, so I don't think you and I would, would have gotten that reference where it was a bit ahead of our time. So, I, I, I'm not sure if being born a year early, earlier than you is significant, but I remember Crossroads when I was about four or five, when I used to go to my nan's for some sausage and mash, okay. and yeah. Cross, it was like the, the latter era of it, or it might have been when they brought it back because there was a definite period yes. where it came back on itv uh, none yes. of this chat is going to make any sense to our american listeners of course but americans out there it's pretty much mm. our version of something like days of our lives but just worse i guess perhaps well again in, like i mean as i grew up in ireland i don't think that i don't think people watched crossroads in ireland given that there were only during the 1970s most people only had two or three channels and finally, Ewan, we have a song that goes all the way back to the Get Back sessions, if you know where to get your bootlegs from. We have The Backseat of My Car.
with a song as big and bold and already brass bandy as the song that we hear on Ram, you might expect it just to be all of that throughout the entire run of it. Just all big trumpets all the time. And, you know, whilst it does that with gusto during like the we believe that we can't be wrong sections and the final closing moments, um, it yeah. also has like these, these, these quiet moments, these real tender little piccolo woodwind moments or the barroom piano that from Dear Boy that comes back and the way that it flits in and out with, with this closing time midnight sax. Like, it's the perfect end to any album for me. Absolutely, yes. I mean, what a closer. I, I, think, I think without Backseat of My Car, Ram is a, is a fine album, but with it, there's a greatness to it because of that cinematic rush to the end of Paul and Linda racing the miserable Beatles behind them and John saying, well, actually, I think you can be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I am the one in the backseat of your car. Honestly... I was kind of worried about this one because I was kind of like, this is a little all over the place. But after a few listens, it's kind of like a masterclass in Paul's um, ability to just flirt in and out of different modes in an instant. It's almost like like schizophrenic. We get such a diverse range of soundscapes here and it's never jarring. Like if anyone else was, was doing this, the way that Houston just comes up with all of these ideas and... He just makes all of these moments that you, you you just wouldn't expect, and it keeps you on edge. It keeps you en- yes. en- entertained and engaged. And then right at the end, he just capitulates and goes, "Yes, Paul knew how to end this album properly," and he literally just does note for note the backseat of my car ending, which I was totally fine with. Well, I think it was either he or George Martin who did the original on the on the Ram album, so might have been verbatim. Yeah, and then it ends with that with that little piano again, and it's and it's like he's saying, "And guys, remember to turn out the lights right at the end." <laughs> and yeah. we actually don't have that. We actually have the sounds of a, a drain pipe or little water droplets splashing down, which was a nice little touch. I didn't really uh, know what, what it was about. I'm sure it's got some sort of meaning. I'm sure our Paul is dead fans can find some interpretation, like, you know, it's Paul crying that Thrillington's not going to sell well or something like that. I'm not sure. And there we are, Ewan. That was Paul McCartney's Thrillington, or should I say Percy Thrillington's Thrillington. Yes. And let me just say, Ewan, thank you so much for choosing this topic because it's given me a chance to get to know this album sooner than I thought I would have. And for me, this is truly a canon release now like you say it isn't a standalone album you do have to listen to a ram first it is it is a sequel or a sister album in that sense but it's definitely canon absolutely yes yeah but it is is an odd that it is odd that he kept it a secret for so long i also find it slightly odd that he released the two first two fireman albums without crediting that they were his work. It wasn't until the third one where they had no choice that he and youth came forward and said, actually, yeah, we are the firemen. But maybe maybe it helps with his experimental guises. Before we finish up, though, dude, we have to select our canon fodder. And you, you probably won't be experienced with this because you would have had to have gotten to the end of one of my recordings for us to have actually have done this part. Uh, this is actually the first okay. time we've made it to the end of one of these. So, Ewan, uh, Cannon Fodder is where I essentially pick three songs 
that is going to be stored in a, a secret ice vault somewhere in Antarctica for all time to make sure that all yeah. generations will hear something from Thrillington. There are two of us. I'm going to choose a song. You can choose one, and then we'll tussle over the third. What okay. song, would you and would you like to preserve for all time from Thrillington? I'm going to go with too many people because of the dynamic violence, the latent extreme way where the strings enter and leave everyone out there listening you don't get any points if you guess my selection but it's going to be monkberry moon delight i I, I was just so thrilled that paul could thrill me as much as he did on thrillington uh i'm gonna see how many more thrills i can fit in this episode but yeah it, it was just a powerhouse but what's our third one gonna be there's a lot of choices out there there's the cheesy charm of dear boy there's the wonderful nostalgia of Heart of the Country. You know, what, what are you leaning towards? I think, I think you showed a preference for Dear Boy, and I'm happy to go with that one. I'm sorry, Uncle Albert, but I've got to be my guest halfway. I've, I've got to be a good host. And we're going to select Dear Boy. So finally, Monkberry Moon Delight, Too Many People... And dear, and dear boy are our three selections from Thrillington. They will be kept safe for all future generations. Hooray! <laughs> Hooray, indeed. Any closing thoughts on this album? Well, I think I think it shows like it shows the naysayers who say that the minute Paul left the Beatles, he became a commercial pop star. While while the more the worthier songs appeared on John Lennon and George Harrison's albums, they espoused their polemical and spiritual points of view. I think this shows, this adds to the canon that we have the Firemen, we have his his 90s concertos, we have the, the out there albums like McCartney 2. It belongs in that canon. I mean, Ian Peel wrote a brilliant book about Paul's more experimental avant-garde side, and I think this, this shows that he was the avant-gardist of the four of them. Now, before we go, Ewan, I need to be one prolific guy, so you must have something to plug. Of course, all of your links will be down below, but is there anything specific you want to point us towards? Oh, well, I'm, I'm quite proud of, of what I call the trilogy uh, of four esoteric McCartney pieces where I interviewed, for We Are Cult, I, I interviewed four of McCartney's collaborators. So I spoke to Carl Davis, Richard Hewson, Youth, and Paul's brother, Mike, about works they did off-the-wall off works they did with the Beatles bassist. So you can find those at We Are Cult. Awesome, and you can. And the interview with uh, Youth, as a guy who is possibly preparing some fireman-based content in the future, uh, was very useful as well. You and all, all I can say is, third time was the charm. Uh, thank you so yes. much for your, for your continued patience over these years. Uh, you've been a fantastic sport. It's been really fun. Awesome. Thank you so much. Take care, pal. Uh, we'll, we'll see you next time. See you.